0: hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. I'm as mad
1: as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore!
0: Pay no attention to
1: that man
2: behind the
3: curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the
2: no. Uh oh! Sounds like somebody's got a case of the mundos. <laughs> Hello there, children.
0: Hey, hey, kids. <laughs>
1: Don't worry, I got an idea. And now the host of the stupid cancer show, Matthew Zack. Woohoo! Not that
0: there's
1: anything wrong with
4: him. Because he has a lot of chit-spot. spot. <laughs> right.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 391 of the Stupid Cancer Show. The voice of young adult cancer. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 20 year young adult brain cancer survivor, coming to you now from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. Broadcasting since 2007, The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org.
5: I'm Mallory Rivera, program manager and co-producer of The Stupid Cancer Show, welcoming all our first time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and following us on SoundCloud.
1: It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Well, it's time to get busy living, folks. Because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. What a great show. Hashtag communities. Yes, virtual communities are becoming the go-to source for trusted cancer information and peer support. To discuss how tweet chats are changing the way young adult cancer patients, survivors, and caregivers are connecting, we're joined by Alicia Staley who is the co-founder of the tweet chat bcsm breast cancer social media and charlie blotner the co-founder of btsm brain tumor social media with our survivor spotlight on young adult survivor from uh denver colorado i believe casey shank all right hey Mal. hello how are you
5: i am delightful
1: That's a new D word for you.
5: I I'm trying to mix it up a little bit, you know.
1: Ducky Dandy, delightful.
5: Yeah, why not?
1: (laughs) Now, daisyful. I'm gonna come up with other D words for you.
5: Uh, they'll they'll pop up as they come, you know.
1: Well, we have nine chills left to four hundred, so make it quick.
5: (laughs) I'll I'll (laughs) debut a new one at four
1: hundred. Fantastic. I'll figure it out. Fantastic. How was your uh, Fourth of July?
5: I had myself a delightful extended. Daycation was lovely.
1: Did it involve another Hamilton something?
5: It didn't. It um, it was supposed to, um but it was awfully hot yesterday yeah. and uh I decided not to wait with 4000 other people for 6 hours in the heat <laughs> Fair enough. and took myself to the Met.
1: Wow. Yes. What's going on there?
5: Uh the delightful costume exhibit, oh, the wow. manus ex machina. Ah. Okay. Uh I geeked out over some really pretty clothes.
1: Wow, very <laughs> it was cool. delightful. It was nice. Good for you. Good for yeah. you. Rest, um, restful. We are uh, happily welcoming our new employee to Stupid Cancer on this podcast. Please welcome Laurel Sally to the conversation. Hello, Laurel.
3: Hello. Thank you for inviting me tonight. I'm so excited to be here.
1: Welcome to the podcast. Officially, you've listened to it as part of your, I guess your your build up to being employed here.
3: My homework.
1: Yes. <laughs> Laurel joins us from our prestigious relationship with NYU's master's program. And uh, she was part of, why don't you tell us, you were part of what this spring?
3: I was part of a practicum that worked with Stupid Cancer to kind of come up with some communications um, for the organization. So I was doing that uh, during the spring, fell in love with everything that they do and fell in love with the team and decided that I just simply could not leave you. And uh, so I uh, am continuing the relationship now, and I am so excited.
1: It's
5: pretty exciting. It's
3: it
1: pretty is. Pretty awesome. So Laurel is heading up our digital marketing strategies, which includes social media, newsletters, ideally at some point, uh, the, the fashion narratives and photojournalism efforts of what our retail stands for. Um, but it's, it's and, uh, and this show, this very show, all the, all the stories that we're not telling can now be told. <laughs> no pressure <laughs> yeah. no pressure
5: all of the very exciting things
1: i would say the biggest thing in the news that came up um was that uh that young woman who was i think she had a some kind sort of psychosocial side effects or behavioral disorders uh, from cancer treatment and she was abused by tsa who didn't understand. I thought I, I try to vet every story to make sure they're not being like clickbaited and yeah. hyperbolized. That was a real no, story. No, it
5: was it was a real story. Uh, the family is suing TSA um, because despite them trying to explain that there were some cognitive deficits uh, and some physical deficits, TSA continued to push this this poor young woman who had just finished her treatment
1: her final her
5: final treatment and they were on their way home and she fell Mm -hmm. and got hurt which is just very unfortunate
1: man that that you know viral is an easy word to say but in our world that thing went viral
5: yeah it definitely for all the right
1: reasons but i mean
5: for all the right reasons it's it's unfortunate that it happened
1: and with laurel here on social media that was the first thing i showed her about the power of uh negativity perhaps or channeling our anger for Social justice, perhaps. Uh, we posted that on our wall, and something like 300,000 people have seen it so far. You've been analy- analyticizing it. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I like the
3: word. Yeah. But yeah. And I think uh, maybe not angry. It was the first time where I really got to see the community and the stupid cancer community really rally around each other and one of their own. And I think that you really summed it all up with your hashtag since we're talking about that tonight. Yes. You summed it up with your hashtag TSA fail, which I think that everybody seemed to be in agreement on that one.
1: Yeah. So I I'm actually curious because I don't follow my hashtags. Was that picked up? Was TSA fail picked up as a hashtag? Uh, we should check on that. Yeah. Do your job. Sorry. <laughs> <I'm>
5: looking
2: <laughs> to- Gosh. <laughs> the third
1: Listen, day. It's only been like
5: 70, yeah. not even 72 yeah. hours. <laughs>
1: But uh, Yeah, but then we, we followed up with a wonderful post about um, uh, uh, that's the Wexlers who were here on our show.
5: Those delightful, wonderful. delightful people from that lovely family.
1: What a great family. So uh, Noah and his sister wore our T-shirts in, I think they were in Central Park, and it, we posted were, a great photo of them.
5: They, and were, they were being very New York-y. They,
1: they, they were loving it. It was the first time here. It was great. It was great. So then we posted to counter, not counteract, but to counter the way our community rallied around our, our our own, we posted a follow-up piece on Facebook about their story and how he's living now and he's, he's doing great. He's going to start junior high school. And the same level of engagement and positivity. Absolutely. Yeah.
3: And to follow up and doing my job, <laughs> hashtag <DSA> fail, <laughs> did get picked up. Really? It did. Wow. I'm looking at it right now on Twitter.
1: Wow. What do you know? Nice. I, I'm a tweeter but that goes directly to uh to this show the the hashtag communities will discuss this during the main segment uh they obviously did not exist for me 20 years ago even 10 years ago but when they started to crop up we our hashtag uh community for young adults is called a y a c s m uh, adolescent young adult social media and i used to like claim that i helped give birth to it turns out i didn't i thought i did (laughs) <laughs> but actually, partial credit goes to Charlie Blotner, who's going to be on the show tonight for with us, and um, it, it's made a real difference. If you actually search AYACSM, csm whenever we post or we remember to post, uh, it's it's become the defining hashtag for young adult the young adult movement on Twitter.
5: It is, and they also host uh, regular chats. I believe they're every other week.
1: Doesn't? Yeah, and Emily Drake does something. Emily Drake too. also does one too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There,
5: there's a lot of them out there.
1: It's impressive to see what's come of these things uh, and and how like how do we innovate the gaps that we just don't have in the real world. Yeah, so very exciting stuff to talk about. but let's uh, let's let's start our show and get Casey uh, on the air. In our spotlight, Casey Shank is a 34 year old ovarian cancer survivor from Denver, Colorado, determined to educate as many people as possible about the importance of self-advocacy. She hopes to inspire laughter, compassion, and creativity. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Casey Shank. Casey.
4: Hi, thank you for. Hi, thank you for.
1: Yeah, it's it's great to have you on the air. <laughs> um, we, uh, I don't think we had an, an ovarian survivor in quite a while now, so it's an interesting. Uh, we talk about self advocacy, and, and then when you're diagnosed with a, a sort of a gynecologic cancer. There's a whole other level of self-advocacy in terms of fertility and reproductive costs and whatnot. So, I would love you to take us through your your story. And we typically ask our guests to start around a year before they were diagnosed and what your life was like.
4: Okay, awesome. Sounds good. Um, so, about a year before I was diagnosed, I would say. Uh, I was stoked to finally have a job out of grad school. Um, So I was working at a community college. Uh, My life is ever boring. So there's always something. Um, So anyway, I was going along living my life uh, and I started to have a pain in my side. A lot of people are very curious when I say ovarian cancer. Um, How I knew, that's the first question always. How did you know? Um, so I knew I had a pain in my side and, um, I'm pretty in tune with my body because I've had a lot of other medical issues in the past. Um, and, uh, once I felt that weird pain that it was just kind of nagging and wouldn't go away. Um, my friends were like, seriously, you've been saying you have an alien in your side for a week. Just go to the doctor. Uh, so I went, um, and... It ended up that I was going to do exploratory surgery and because my CA-125 was at 360 and it's supposed to be at 30 or less. Um, but they didn't suspect cancer at all at first. Um, it was just exploratory surgery, maybe some endometriosis, whatever will be done, the end. Um, so I went in and I ended up having a full hysterectomy. And uh, a week later, I was diagnosed with stage 2B ovarian cancer, Um, and then I ended up doing chemo, and I did 12 weeks of chemo once a week. Um, And I have been doing my best to get strong and recover.
1: So that is... So let me ask you the question. Did you feel like during this crazy process, you were treated like a human being, or did you have to fight to be taken seriously? Or you, you claim, and you, I think I know you after speaking with you that you do. You are a person that is very self-aware of their body and their health. Um, did you ever feel like that wasn't considered, or that they didn't really believe you?
4: I kind of don't know what that feels like because I won't take anyone's crap. I'm, I'm like, uh, you need to listen to me. I know. Um, but actually I went to my gynecological oncologist earlier today and told her I was doing this. Um, and she thought it was amazing. She's one year older than me. So when I went in to meet her, I was like, well, dude, did you start medical school when you were five? So she's been amazing. Always treated me like a human being.
1: Well, that's amazing. And, and I would say. Probably rare, given the many stories we have, so that's a, a, a good thing in your court. Let me ask you a question about fertility, um, because clearly you had a hysterectomy, and that's kind of the end of the line for those things. Was that a conversation you brought to the table, or you were aware of, about the risks of losing that?
4: Uh, to be honest, um, they my doctor did talk to me, but as soon as she brought it up, she— And I love you. I know you love to talk about fertility, and I love that you're a champion for that cause. Um, And you have two beautiful children, so you should be. Um, But uh, fertility... She brought it up. She said, um, your surgery could go this way, this way, or this way. These are all the things. And then she got to fertility options, and she said, we have a bunch of fertility options. And I cut her off, and I said, no, thank you, not interested, not having kids, made that decision 10 years ago. And she well, and I was like, nope, I'm positive. So it wasn't an issue for me.
1: Wow, that's a very bold decision to make at that time in your life. Did you have that predilection for that that lifestyle early on, or was that something that came to you given the situation at hand?
4: Um, no, I had made that decision a long time ago, um, and this kind of wraps back around to some stuff I'm totally psyched about talking about tonight. Uh, but I've had a bipolar diagnosis since I was 16, um, so that's over half my life ago and um, i made the choice that a lot of people think like oh you don't want to pass your genetics along well actually i don't and um the choice was more based on i don't want kids who are saying mommy's depressed she won't play with me mommy's in bed like that would suck and i've had mental illness long enough to know um, that that could be my reality. And I have lots of friends who have the most adorable, amazing, energetic children, and I get to spend a lot of time with them, and I have the bonus of giving them back. Um, so I love little humans a lot, but um, I don't think that it's a wise choice for taking care of myself.
1: So let's talk about that bipolar diagnosis. There's a lot of stigma that is still kind of wrapped around that per se and how have you managed to navigate that in your life?
4: Um, my, my bipolar was resistant so I went through five years of trying to find the right medication and just hitting a wall with side effects again and again and again so after a hospitalization when I was 21 um, they decided it was time to try ECT which is electroconvulsive therapy so basically uh, shocking your brain Um, which seemed really scary at the time Uh, but I was willing to try anything and it turns out that it saved my life it was amazing it was slow to take um, but and I've had some maintenance over the years but haven't for quite some time and um, so uh, so I did ECT and then later I was able to do medication so for me Chemo brain was no big deal because I already had short-term memory loss, um, and I had—I would say—I had forty treatments over the course of ten years.
1: So let's talk about that too. There's a whole—I <laughs> uh, don't know. Were you at CancerCon this year? Please remind me.
4: I was. Yes, All I right. live in Denver.
1: Right. So, so how could you not? I think it's mandatory. So then so our closing session was all about survivorship research, which is not about the acute care you get when you're initially diagnosed, but about your life after cancer and what challenges we face and how to mitigate those challenges you're spending. You you had this whole thing building up even before your diagnosis of cancer. Did that in any way help or hurt the way you managed it through it and now? During it and beyond it, because that's a lot of stuff to happen to you to begin with. That probably created an environment that made made you even stronger and resistant to these challenges.
4: Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, for one thing, I already had my posse built up. Um, I have had support in my life uh, for as long as I can remember. So I have my people. Um, I learned at an early age how to communicate. Um, about what was going on with my body, with my emotions, with myself. Um, and so, going into doctor's appointments, I knew exactly what kind of questions to ask and things that I needed to write down. I knew that I had to have my mom come with me to any appointment. Um, and I just knew how to do the doctor thing, and I knew how to do the side effects thing. And um, I was super lucky because. Uh, my bipolar uh, kindly stepped aside while I had chemo and so that my body was able to fight without any serious mental illness side effects. Um, But uh, bipolar said, okay, we've done chemo, your body hurts, and now I'm going to come back. So I have dealt with that a bit um, in the last year, but I feel like I have the most amazing toolbox on the planet.
1: Well what I like about how you're choosing to give back is that you're constructing workshops and training sessions to educate higher ed professors um about what it's like to work with college students with chronic conditions. Has that have you found it to be um rewarding or are they receptive to this type of edification and are they already aware of it or like what have you found to be most intriguing about this path
4: so um, I'm at kind of the beginning of the path which is awesome I worked in higher ed for eight years um, my master's is in counseling um, or counseling and career development with an emphasis in higher education so I've been working at a commu- I had been working at a community college here in Denver and my students had really low resources, and so I was already in the practice of helping them. A student comes in to my office. They weren't looking for, like, how do I do my schedule? They're looking for, I'm homeless. I don't know how to do this. I have seven kids. Okay, no one has seven kids anymore, but, you know, that's how it felt. Um, I need to find food, so we were looking at bare minimum and I think even in that higher ed professionals didn't know what they were doing as far as providing those resources there was a lot of like broken communication you come to me I'll send you the counseling office you come to me I'll send you to the health center I was not about that I'm not okay with that I always did a lot of handoffs or coaching my students like hey you're going to be talking to this person and these are some things that you can say to make it easier or hey you've had problems with your instructor here's some ideas for that conversation do you want to role play the conversation these are some things I've said in the past Um, and as far as cancer in higher ed uh, I think the reaction a lot of times is, we don't have that, that's not happening here. And if you just take the stats and put them into the institution, it's like actually you do have it there. So in my brainstorming and in my, like, coexisting conditions, um, I've been trying to focus on ways um, to really promote self-advocacy for students and having that be a model and having professionals be able to work as a team with students on teaching them how to advocate for themselves and how it's to their benefit. Um, so in all of that, I've realized my focus is going to be broadened just a little bit to chronic conditions because a chronic condition, a lot of times is, uh, is um, addressed the same way in higher ed. And a lot of um Institutions are getting on board with a model called uh, case management. And for me, like, that's not enough. And um, they can only know so much about certain things. And they do a lot of reactive instead of proactive. So I really hope that professionals can learn how to help them their students be advocates or even health professionals teaching their patients how to be advocates for themselves.
1: So that's another interesting point that we try to bring up but actually let me step ahead for a second. We did a podcast mm-hmm. a while ago called All Young Adult Diseases Suck and it really outlined, we had uh, someone with lupus, someone with MS on the show, someone with type 1 diabetes on the show and you're right that the, the, the commonalities on the horizontal level of, of, of what we have challenges dealing with, are pretty much equally shared in, in terms of, you know, it's hard enough to be well and 25 years old, let alone dealing with the burden of a chronic disease on top of that. So it, I, I get everything you're saying. Everything you're saying is completely and exactly on point. But with regard to self-advocacy, do you uh, ascribe to the theory that some people are born that way and some people have to be taught to be that way or and that some people are kind of helpless and just need to be guided?
4: Uh, I think it's a hybrid. Some people are born with the characteristics of one who would easily advocate for themselves. You know, like I was born a little sassy and a little charismatic, which that is the thing that helped me the most. Even as a preschooler, I charmed my teachers into, you know, it's like, everyone has to walk. We don't ever pick anyone up. And every day it was like, Oh, and they would pick me up, you know, like that charismatic, like I'm going to get what I need. I didn't even know I was advocating for myself, but from a young age, you just have kind of that whatever. Um, But I think if you're not having those uh, characteristics naturally, Or you're a little more passive um, it can totally be taught and I've tried thinking of ways to teach it and I've come up with a model and I'm just kind of working on it Um, but I think you know you provide a step-by-step like maybe it isn't like this is how you charm people because that's not necessarily what self-advocacy is but um, you know, for a doctor's appointment, you do these specific things. When you go see your advisor in college, you do these things, you know? And so um, to be able to make it a model that reaches all aspects of your life, like the wellness wheel has six or seven aspects uh, depending on who you talk to. Um, And there are different like zones of your life. Well, if you get the concept down to advocate for yourself, in general, you're going to be able to do it in all of those areas of your life.
1: So we got about a minute or two left. I'd like you to comment Mm -hmm. on uh, the book you're looking to write now because Mm -hmm. that's probably going to help a lot more people too.
4: Yeah. um, Again, kind of in the middle of that. Um, I'm so excited about it. It's it's featuring that model I was talking about for self-advocacy. There's an acronym with like, You know, identify what's going on, research it, come up with a proposal, propose it, that kind of thing. Um, So I'm really psyched about that and then giving a lot of examples of how that plays out in all of those areas of your life. And then giving a lot of practice things in my book like um, uh, try this, do this journal entry, try this with someone like you know having a dialogue about it with someone or answer these questions so it's a lot of hands-on stuff for people who maybe if they just read about it it doesn't quite sink in but if you can practice it it makes a little more sense. uh...
1: okay where are you online where can people follow you tweet uh, add it to instagram perhaps
4: uh... is so embarrassing um, i'm really late to the game on all of that and for this occasion, I created a Twitter account, and it's Chronic Casey.
1: Well, there you go. I, uh, the handle is Chronic Casey on Twitter. Casey Shank, 34-year-old ovarian cancer survivor from Denver, Colorado. CancerCon alum determined to educate as many people as possible about the importance of self-advocacy. Casey, thank you for joining us on The Stupid Cancer Show.
4: Thank you so much.
1: All right, Mal. And now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am.
5: Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That's events.stupidcancer.org. Sign up for meetup alerts and never miss a meetup again. If you'd like to learn more about hosting your own stupid cancer meetup, visit stupidcancer.org slash meetup. Okay, there are events happening in Morinova, Gilbert, Phoenix, New York, Portland, and Las Vegas.
1: Alrighty, No one should face cancer alone because isolation sucks. Now you can get instant anonymous peer support on your mobile device with Instapeer, our free mobile app for iOS and Android devices. Create your account and privately message with fellow patients, survivors, and caregivers who've been there and already walked in your shoes. Join our mobile community of thousands right now and visit instapier.org.
5: We've launched a newsfeed aggregator on Tumblr for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to share on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org slash feed.
1: If you've not yet checked out the Stupid Cancer Community Forums, you're missing out. Join thousands of your peers in a safe and meaningful online environment to get connected, swap stories, learn from one another, and foster... young adult cancer conversation with hundreds of topics discussion groups and issues to choose from it's a great place to get busy living learn more at stupidcancer.org slash community
5: support our programs and services by heading over to stupidcancerstore.org you'll feel great and look great in your new stupid cancer gear that's stupidcancerstore.org be proud wear stupid cancer
1: and that is your stupid cancer news Our main segment on Hashtag Communities features Charlie Blotner, a senior at Arizona State University, co-founder of BTSM Chats. Uh, He is a member of the student advisory panel for Stanford MedX And Alicia Staley, three-time cancer survivor, co-founder of the BCSM Twitter chat, and currently working as a patient advocacy manager at Cure Forward. Please welcome to the show Charlie Blotner and Alicia Staley. Hello, hello, hello.
0: Hello. Thanks for having us.
1: You know, I, I want to predicate to our listeners here that we go back a very, very long time to the early inklings of what was the internet back then and how far we've come.
0: Absolutely. No, it seems like, was it been now? Did we meet, I'm trying to think, is it like five years ago? there was More something like,
1: that. was it Phoenix that we had a blogger thing or something? I forget when it, when it happened.
0: Yeah, it was probably even longer than
1: that. Yeah, yeah. it was, it was yeah. a while ago. I'd love you both to start by sharing your cancer stories, because what good is doing all this amazing stuff, if not for the reasons why we did it in the first place?
0: Sure, yeah. Alicia, you want to kick it off first? I feel like yours is more exciting than mine. <laughs> <laughs> more eventful, at least. Uh, Let's make it a it, contest. May, maybe
2: uh, yeah, maybe longer. I don't know about <laughs> more eventful, but... Um, <laughs> So I'm actually a three-time cancer survivor. I was first diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease when I was a sophomore studying aerospace engineering at Syracuse University. Um, It took me about three years in total to get through the various treatments that I needed uh, for Hodgkin's. So I, I actually initially just had radiation and surgery, but relapsed right away. Um, and then uh, tried my luck with chemotherapy and more surgery. Um, so after about three years of dealing with that, I was able to put that cancer episode behind me. Unfortunately uh, for me in 2004, and then again in 2007, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, which is probably a direct result of the massive amount of radiation I had as a young young adult dealing with the Hodgkin's. So, um, it's been over 25 years now um, in total uh, that I've been a cancer survivor, so it's uh, it's definitely part of the fabric of who I am and who I've become. So.
1: Well, we're glad you're here. At least I am glad you're here.
2: <laughs>
0: I, I am, too. I am, too. <laughs> definitely. Um, definitely. Yeah. And. My story goes back to uh, when I was 13 years old in seventh grade, um, diagnosed with a brain tumor, misdiagnosed for uh, three or four months or so first with um, heart problems, all sorts of other stuff. Um, Didn't have any heart problems or anything, Um, but then an MRI was finally ordered, brain tumor. Um, it was determined that the tumor was slow growing enough to do, um, watch and wait for a while. And it was discovered after, um, tingling and numbness, um, for a period of time. And so, uh, the tingling and numbness ended up being seizures. And so, uh, that was managed for, uh, with medication for, um, almost five years or so. Um, and with serial scanning and everything for, for three months, every six months, um, and then got moved out every year. Um, so did watch and wait for almost five years. And then it was determined, uh, that the tumor had grown enough that something, uh, needed to be done in order to, uh, save, um, or really prevent, uh, future damage from taking place, uh, before the tumor grew too much. Um, and so I had uh, awake brain surgery on, uh, the first day of my senior year of high school. Uh, so that was pretty exciting way to, uh, to kick off senior year, um, at 17. And so removed, uh, grade two astrocytoma. Um, and so before I knew if I got into college or not, I knew that I had this brain tumor. Uh, so that's my, my little story shrank in to a couple minutes there.
1: Now, Charlie, you had a benign tumor, correct?
0: Um, yeah. So it's kind of tricky there because I didn't have I didn't have any radiation, I didn't have any chemo, but it was a total gross resection, uh, with the grade two tumor. So um, Liz and I talk about this all the time, Liz, so uh, co-founder of BTSM, and so I I never really say that I had brain cancer um, because you know I didn't have chemo, I didn't have radiation. Um, at the same time, uh, my the first surgeon that I saw um, told me that if I didn't have this removed, then uh, um, eventually I would uh, have glioblastoma. For if this were to continue uh, to grow, and then I didn't have any treatment, um, and so it's an interesting conversation and almost like a debate. Really, um, would this eventually you know turn into GBM without being treated? Um, did I not have chemo and radiation because? Um, simply because all the tumor was removed during the surgery, um, was it because you know because it wasn't cancer? So, I, I don't say that I had brain cancer because I kind of base it off of not having chemo and radiation. Um, but well, I kind bring of it, say what you will with that. No,
1: it. I bring it up for a reason. I mean, people talk about oh, you have the good cancer, the bad cancer, and I remember distinctively when I wanted to start this organization when I wanted to start stupid cancer. Even our manifesto, which you were both aware of, is that benign tumors can be just as devastating as malignant ones. And especially when you're up in the grand noodle there in your brain, you know, everything counts and the playing field is truly leveled, especially when they're telling you, well, if you don't do it, it could become this. So, and, and, yeah, and it didn't stop you from becoming a globally well advocate (laughs) for everything that you're doing right now which is, you know, and again and even you know, Alicia, your um, you know, Hodgkins is considered the good one. <laughs> so, but that's a terrible thing to say. So, yeah, you know. Yeah. Exactly. But again, like I'm sure that these and many other which we are going to discuss conversations have come up thousands of times in the many chats that you put together. But uh, let's let's start at the beginning then because what were obviously 24 years ago was forever ago, but what have be, what has been for both of you collectively, and you were making a nod to Liz Salmi, who I will give a great nod to, another amazing uh, brain tumor activist on social. And we must pay homage to the late Jody Sugar, who helped birth pretty much everything <laughs> that, that, that inspired us to be who we are today. But, yes. um, what, uh, for the both of you, what were the key platforms or support systems that you were taking advantage of? that maybe got frustrated with and then pioneered the idea of these, uh, these tweet chats?
2: Well, for me it was, it was pretty simple. I mean, I, you know, growing up, um, and dealing with Hodgkins when I was in college, that was for me a very isolating experience. And I tried to rely on the support groups at the hospital because that was really our only um, outlet or avenue for sort of connecting with other patients and you know seeking out care uh, you know outside of the actual treatment per se but you know in terms of social support or finding other patients that you could network with and connect with and and I really figured out early on that you know the support system at the hospital is really dependent on it's a it's a function of time and geography so it happens to be who's diagnosed with cancer in that sort of geographic area that you know you're going to or the hospital that you're going to is it resides in and for me it just there there were there were nobody there were no patients there that were you know within my age range so I was attending support groups trying to attend support groups for cancer patients, cancer survivors, and was really feeling out of touch and out of place. And when, you know, after I finished the Hodgkin's treatment and, you know, tried to move on with my life, I just sort of put that in the past and didn't think that it would be anything that I'd ever have to worry about again. Uh, When the breast cancer, um, when I was diagnosed in 2004 and again in 2007, I, I relied again on what I could find at the hospital in terms of support groups or other cancer survivors. And I quickly realized that, that it just that was not where I was going to make or connect with the people that I needed to connect with. And I think for me, my aha moment was when I was recovering from the second breast cancer. I happened to, you know, I had a friend that was bugging me to get on Twitter and she said, you got it? I'm seeing all these cancer survivors, I'm seeing all these people talking about, you know, living these very full lives um, as cancer survivors and you just got to log on and and see what they're talking about and, you know, within 30 minutes of being on Twitter and I signed up in 2008, I was able to connect with other women that had had Hodgkin's first and, and a subsequent diagnosis of breast cancer and I just realized that You know, literally in the palm of my hand on my phone, I had the ability to connect with people from essentially all over the world uh, in a way that I had never been able to do before. And that, to me, just sort of brought home the point that, all right, the ability to sort of create the community that you need is at your fingertips with social media, with Facebook, with Twitter, with all these different areas that you can Essentially, build up a community when you need it. So for, for me, it was uh, it was an amazing moment. So.
1: Charlie, something similar, perhaps for you?
2: Yeah. Uh, so
0: when I was, you know, when I was first diagnosed, then I, I was still in pediatrics and children's hospitals. Uh, but I really struggled with having, you know, my like roommate or the kid next door being like, literally an infant. Um, up crying all night, or then when finally getting bumped up to an adult hospital for surgery, um, someone's grandfather, um, and me not really being able to bond one way or the other with either demographic there, um, and kind of realizing, well, the breast cancer community has this thing going where, uh, you know, they're able to talk to each other, and you know, really bond and connect about whether it's you know talking about treatments, whether it's talking about survivorship, whether it's about uh, jobs, relationships, family, whatever it is, uh, and the brain tumor community can really use that too. But I think one of the biggest differences um, between the two communities is that um, it's almost like there are less of us. I mean, there are definitely less of us in the sense of whether it's participants or whether it's, Um, survivors who are out there and willing to get on social media. Um, But a lot of it has to do with those who are cognitively able to participate because of the effects of their tumor and where it's located and um, what's going on there with surgery and after effects with that. Um, And so that's something that Liz and I have really struggled with and that we didn't think um, would be an issue. Uh, and I, you know, when I was looking for support, um, throughout my kind of diagnosis process and then that five-year watch and wait period, I didn't find a single support group and, you know, none of my doctors could find any, none of them mentioned anything to me, neurologists, anyone. Um, and so I was really just out there alone to myself. Um, and so I really didn't think that there was anyone who was my age, uh, like this. I mean, I knew that there were other people with brain tumors, but I just didn't know where they were. Um, and so I figured that, uh, you know, if there wasn't a resource out there that someone else had created, then I might as well follow suit with um, with Jody and Alicia and Dr. Ty, and just do it for my community.
1: Well, it's interesting to point out, and I, I had to remind myself of this that when Twitter launched, hashtags were not part of its platform. They were invented by users and most people don't realize that like the audience the users invented the hashtags it wasn't in the brain child of uh biz stone when when he, he gave birth to it but you just said something that resonated with me really well in that here you are building something brand new and you can't possibly predict that it might even alienate a population that it that can't use it and we kind of went through that with the, uh, with the summits. And Charlie, you were at OMG, I forget, 2013, 2014. And right. you know, here we are, built this massive convention, and then we're alienating the people that can't go. But yet we're doing something that's so innovative and so important. So I'm, have you been able to course correct or make any sort of um, accommodations for the populations that can't take advantage of the tweet chat technology?
0: Right. Well, so some of the feedback we've been getting recently is that, um, you know, tweet shots go by so quickly. And when a lot of people are participating at once, um, you'll have a lot of text that's just flying by. And it's really hard to kind of keep track of what people are saying. And so if you have, um, you know, cognitive impairment or if it's just kind of hard to keep track of what's going on, it's just, you know, it's a lot to focus in on that. Um, then it's really hard to participate in a chat, um, whether you're a brain tumor survivor or not, because um, it's just a lot going on. Um, and so we've kind of been asked recently, well, what if you know, what if we move this to um, to like a video platform or to something where you could call in and the reality of that is that um, there's not really a platform that would support enough people to do that or that would be realistic for uh, enough people to be able to kind of patiently wait your turn if it was a talking type platform or if it was something with video. Um, And so listen, I think that Twitter is the best platform for it. It's just hard for Um, for everyone to find something that works for them when everyone has their own specific needs. And, you know, that's with anything in life. It's hard to make sure that um, that it works for everyone. But uh, I think as time goes on, hopefully be able to kind of whether that's posting, you know, the topics ahead of time. uh, We can't post people's answers ahead of time either. So it's just kind of tough to to accommodate everyone, unfortunately.
1: So which one came first, BTSM or BCSM?
0: BCSM. B-C-S-M, yeah, <laughs> definitely. They were our yeah. inspiration.
1: <laughs> so let, let's talk about that day one, Alicia. How, how, what was that like for you? Were hashtags already in style when this started, or was there anything even remotely like it, or you just created something at Athena that worked?
2: Well, it, um, we actually just celebrated our fifth birthday. So the the B-C-S-M Twitter chat now is five years old. Um, we started on July 4th in 2011, and we made the conscious decision that we would. Uh, it was a Monday night, happened to be a holiday. We knew Monday nights were going to be the nights that we tried to run this Twitter chat, and we thought, "Hey, well, you know, we'll we'll put it up on a holiday night, and you know, if it bombs, then we can blame the holiday." <laughs>
0: uh,
2: but it didn't bomb, and we were actually uh, very surprised that about 60 people showed up and actually interacted with the, the hashtag uh, for the first chat, and we realized we had we were, uh, we were onto something. Um, we, I have to give credit to Dana Lewis, who was the, she founded the HCSM hashtag um, chat. Group that's for that stands for healthcare social media, and um, Jody Shoger and I had sort of connected uh, on Twitter, and we kept seeing the HCSM tweets fly by with a lot of healthcare, uh, you know, patient engagement topics, and you know, process improvement topics around healthcare and healthcare communities. So Jody and I tended to gravitate to that chat and get really excited when on the occasion they would address a patient you know a patient specific issue and Jody and I spent a lot of time talking about it like you know what if we came together and tried to build a virtual community and all we did was focus on breast cancer topics and you know could this could this take off and uh, I think after 5 years I think we can definitively call it a success and it's definitely we've got a lot ahead of us um you know every year we learn what we can do different how to improve the outreach and how to improve what we do to build the community so it's definitely um it's something that's going to continue to grow and continue to expand so we're very excited about that but yeah so five five years is pretty good
1: let's get to those meat and potatoes then let's talk about (laughs) what is discussed how it's discussed? What have you learned from it? How have you grown with it? And do people really benefit from it?
2: Well, I'm glad that you asked that because that was a question that we struggled with for a while was, was there a way for us to prove the value of what we were doing? And we spent a lot of time thinking about it. What's the best way to um, look back on what we've done in see if there's a way to sort of qualify or quantify uh, the topics that that we talk about. And so the topics for us, basically, we take input from the community itself if there's something that they feel is bubbling up in the breast cancer world uh, in terms of research or news that they want to discuss. So, um, you know, most people know about Angelina Jolie's decision to have a, a preventative mastectomy uh, back in 2013, that was a, a a big topic of conversation for us, um, you know, in terms of discussing how people make decisions like that, you know, the benefits of having those kinds of conversations with your doctor. So for us, it was just, it's responding to the community and making sure we address topics. Uh, we had the opportunity to actually uh, do uh, sanctioned research study on the work that we've done and just try to address the simple question of does participating in a weekly Twitter chat um, improve the patient's self-reported outcome or, you know, how does it make them feel? Do they feel less anxious um, after the chance to talk about topics that they deem important? Um, and it it came back, yes, that that over a 1,000 people participated in the survey. In um, and, and the research survey, we were able to work with uh, Dr. Tai's um, healthcare group, and they did the analysis on the, the research on the Twitter chat, and we're, we were able to come back and say, you know, after a structured set number of um, Twitter chats that people do respond very well and do find it helpful and do find it a valuable resource for them in terms of the care continuum.
1: That is entirely fascinating to me. <laughs> and because there's been such this, uh, one, one of my personal agendas is to start this legit academic pivot to survivorship research where patient outcomes reporting is about their life mm-hmm. and not about their medical issues. So we are debuting now. Actually we did debut at CancerCon 2015 and OMG 2014 became the first evidence-based cancer events mm-hmm. that over a two-year longitudinal data study with nerdy outcome science stuff I can't explain, we have a research <laughs> poster that, that, that quantifies specific, you know, a psychosocial metrics that were improved over two years by coming to the conference. Mm-hmm. We can talk offline about it. Let, let's work with you guys on getting this more expanded exposure to the... Yeah. the the hungry survivors of research community out there, all social scientists and PhD nerds that need this data to validate everything we're trying to prove. But let's Charlie, would you chime in on what are some of the topics that have been addressed over the past couple of years with the, uh, the BTSM?
0: Sure. Yeah. And so right now, so Liz and I, this past winter, we put out uh, a community survey as well. And right now, We are uh, trying to work on a journal article to get that published as well, so we're excited for that. Um, But, you know, we realized that BCSM, they were measuring, um, you know, measuring what their community was doing, and as a result, we're getting um, better feedback about how to serve their community. And so, as always be CSM, inspiring BTSM. Uh, so, so we put out a survey as well. Um, and in that we also, you know, we asked, well, uh, what are, what would you like to see discussed in future, um, BTSM chats? But some of the stuff that we've talked about in the past, um, and we have, you know, the age range that came back in the survey, um, was predominantly people, um, between in their really late twenties and, um, to, to early forties. So there's, there's a range there. Um, but some people asked, you know, um, in school related questions about, um, you know, reintegrating back into school. Um, cause we have, we have quite a bit of college students. Um, then we had a lot of people, um, and over the past, really over the past couple of years, cause we've been going since May, 2013. Um, we've talked a lot about, um, Fatigue and long-term effects like that. We've also had nutrition, um, some general chats about survivorship. Um, We've had radiation oncologists come in and talk specifically about certain types of treatments because we've had um, a good handful of our participants had radiation, and so um, they've had questions that just really haven't been answered by their uh, physicians over the years. Um, And so we'll have um, guest moderators come in and kind of help fill in those gaps, or um, psychosocial-based chats that have to do um, with, you know, with depression and anxiety. Just kind of talking about that, or from caregivers' perspectives, um, forming relationships, whether that's friendships or um, romantic interests. Um, so it's kind of all over the spectrum, really. Just anything that you wish that your ideal support group would have had in person except now we're online and we're on Twitter and we're talking about right. it on there instead.
1: <laughs> so let me ask you one more quick question then. I know Laurel has a question that, like about analytics <laughs> and stuff like that. Cause we really want to know all the, all the nerdy geeky data stuff is uh, ha- has uh, there been a good reception? I kind of know the answer to this, but I'm asking for the radio. Has there been a, a, a decent reception from the healthcare provider community that what that these are valid, necessary, or are they like, oh, it's just the internet? Well, I don't know what that means.
0: Definitely, definitely valid response. And that's a great question, too, you know, because I think, um, I think as time goes on, um, a lot of people who are who are new to Twitter, too, um, clinicians will start to ask more, well, is this just a bunch of you know, a bunch of patients or in the past would have asked. It's just a bunch of patients kind of ranting, but now as we've seen, um, you know, holistic care and patient-centered care really start to come to the forefront. We see that patients' needs include, um, you know, all aspects of their lives, and right. that includes talking to other patients, um, which is exactly what this is. And um, Dr. Matthew Katz has been a huge help, I think, for both of our communities and a huge voice um, in the uh, radiation oncology community and just in um, the, the oncology community in general for what we're doing. Um, and so he's gone and presented at ASCO, the uh, American Society of Clinical Oncology, conferences about BCSM and BTSM and um, other chats. And so he's really helped to elevate our voices as well.
2: I, I think for, in particular for the BCSM community with having Dr. A tie, Deanna. A tie be such a big part of what we do. Um, You you know, she's been able to pull in other breast surgeons and other oncologists that um, are interested to see what we're doing, um, and are you know aren't aren't afraid to jump into the conversation and and see what we're talking about. Or um, we do get a lot of notes. We we get a lot of emails and, you know, direct messages after Twitter chats that say, you know, I'm an oncologist in a small practice and I've been lurking or sort of watching the chat now for a couple weeks and, you know, I've learned a lot. And so we get sort of this, we get feedback sort of behind the scenes as to, you know, there's a number of people that are watching or they'll scan the transcripts of the chats um, and just say that, you know they'll learn a lot, or they'll all you know they'll change up the way that they interact with patients, or they'll be a little bit more, in some cases, empathetic, or um, you know be better about asking more social uh, geared questions. You know, in that short period of time that they might have with their patients, to make sure that you know, despite cancer, that they're doing the best that they can in terms of everyday life. Um, so I think that that it's i it's always wonderful to get that kind of feedback. Hey, it's
3: Laurel, if I can just jump in here. I have a quick question for either or both of you. Um, Stupid Cancer is really looking to engage more with our community online. And I was wondering if you could really speak to how you deem your chats a success, like how you measure success um, afterwards, if it's kind of um, right after the chat, if you go in and you look at your analytics, or really how you decide um, a successful chat.
0: Yeah, well, I think that for stupid cancer, it might be a little different than um, in terms of scaling uh, than BCSM (laughs) and BTSM because your organization is a bit longer or is a bit larger than the two of ours, (laughs) uh, just a little bit. Um, But um, Liz and I, we measure it. um, I think it's differently on different days. You know, I think that some days we'll have people pop in, and I still remember. Um, this tweet from one of our first chats is someone came in and they said, you know, I learned more in this hour than I've learned in the uh, entire past year uh, or than I've learned, you know, with my doctor in this, in this past year. Uh, wow. And that, that really just stuck with me as something that, um, you know, no matter how many people, whether it was five people or 50 people or, 75 people or 100 people or 200 people or, you know, however many people in who are in the chat in that hour, um, the fact that, that one person learned that much in that hour uh, deemed that a successful chat. But then, um, you know, if we're going to look in numbers, then we would go on simpler um, and, you know, we'd go on there and look and see. Um, but then we'll also have the people who don't participate in the chat, but we'll um, kind of do some um, analyzing of their own afterwards and do they'll send out kind of like summarized reports afterwards and um, kind of send those out to the community. So I guess it's kind of varies uh, week by week, month by month. And BTSM used to be every week for the first uh, year or two, but then um, when I started college, we moved it back to just once a month because it was too much to manage for me. Um, but so that's that's kind of my... Uh, my quick and dirty general answer, but Alicia, what do you have to say about that? I,
2: I think it's it's pretty much the same. I think we we are cognizant of our, our metrics and you know who how many are participating and what kind of volume uh, we see on Twitter. Um, but we also have it tied back to what does um, so we actually have gone and set up uh, a website um, in preparation for. BCSM to become a 501c3 uh, this year, so we're now on bcsm.org, and we're we find a lot of crossover. So after a Twitter chat, uh, we'll see a lot of traffic spike um, to the site, uh, and we'll get a lot of outreach from you know maybe our contact us page, or comments on blog posts, things like that. So we're starting to see that. You know, Twitter might be the primary platform for us, but people are finding us on Facebook now, they're finding us on the website, and the conversations are just continuing to grow, um, you know, very organically across the platforms that make sense for the people that want to engage. Um, So we're trying to do our best to make sure that, you know, after a chat, there's other ways to get in touch with the community.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. It's that retention. How do you yeah. uh, pay it forward and keep cycling in with a growth strategy? All right. So, final question. We've got a minute left. Um, I do really want to know if you, are, if you do ner- ner- nerdily track, I made up a word there, your, your <laughs> metrics and your analytics and, and what type of engagement do you have. I, I mean, a cursory search of both hashtags, it's, it's massive by comparison to anything else out there in the space. But uh, who, do, you, do you both do all the nerdy stuff on the back end?
0: So, Liz is our she's out of our team she's our cerebral thinker ah. um and I am more of the you know let me come up with the like emotions based like feelings topics this week and then you know you handle the uh, you know who the uh, world health organization you know just changed um their guidelines on this you handle this for like that month, and so we kind of divvy things up based on um what's the like emotions and what's the, um, more like cold, hard facts themes. And so when we're looking at the data, we both do it together, but I think sometimes she'll more, she'll take the lead on that. Uh, and so right now that's kind of where, where we're at with that. We're actually going to have a meeting, um, next week and really break down all this data. And we're, uh, we're set to, uh, to get going with the biostatistician and break down all this uh, survey, survey so Hopefully we can come back at you with, uh, with some key findings from that. But well, I think that's where we're at right
1: now. No, and I, I, I we definitely gonna keep doing these shows. Uh, I mean, this fascinates me. It's a direct extension of all the progress we've made in the last 10 years and how we're using technology not to tell people how often we're going to the bathroom, but to actually make life <laughs> a little better for people who, who have a service now that just didn't exist in the past. So, um, yeah. again, you guys are like my best friends in in the digital universe and in all, all of cancer. We go back so long and I can't thank you for being so supportive of me and and vice versa and helping to, you know, just make a real difference. Like this is a real difference. Alicia Staley, three time cancer survivor, co-founder of BCSM Twitter chat currently working as patient advocate manager at Cure Forward and Charlie Blinder, Sr. at Arizona State University, co-founder of the BTSM Chats as well, student advisory panel for Stanford Medics. Thank you both so much for being epic, amazing, awesome people here on the Stupid Cancer Show and every other day of the universe.
2: Thank you so much. All right, take care. <laughs> Thanks for having us.
1: All right, now it's time for our closing sequence.
2: Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets.
1: You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer.
5: All right, folks, that's our show, the 391st episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and following us on SoundCloud.
1: We hope you enjoyed this show on Hashtag Communities. I'd like to thank our guests, Casey Shank, Alicia Staley, and Charlie Blotner for joining us. Broadcasting since 2007, The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer. Online at stupidcancer.org. Coming to you from the Chemo Deck. And on behalf of my team here at The Stupid Cancer Show, we hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Thank you for listening and we'll see you right back here on the next exciting podcast of the stupid cancer show. Goodbye, folks. Imagine
0: having college with so much on your